and you can be seated this morning. Let me ask you a question as we kind of get started this morning. Um, we're in the midst of a series called Counting Sheep where um, we're talking about those fears, those issues that keep us up at night. And we talked about guilt and shame a couple of weeks ago. Uh, last week we talked about the fact that sometimes complacency and comfort and feeling like there's more to life can cause that. And over the next couple of weeks we'll talk about loneliness and we'll talk about um, how uh, rejection can have a part in that. Um, and also just how we can trust in Christ in the midst of that and how anger can cause us issues at night. So today we're going to focus on uh, a different topic and it's kind of the central one, I think. And I think it's one that most people deal with at some point in their lives if you're not dealing with it right now. And that is we're going to talk about how do we overcome fear, anxiety, worry, stress? How does that look? What does it look like in our lives? So let me ask you this as we're kind of getting started, okay? When is, in your, in your life, what moment do you think of when you think the most scared I've ever been was? Okay, and so when you think in your life, right, the time in my life when I was the most scared, that time was, all right? Here's what I want you to do. I want you to just tell somebody around you that moment, all right? In three, two, one, go, all right? So you're like, me, I'm not scared, never. All right, as I was thinking about it, everybody got time to share there? All right, we, we don't need novels, just, you know, quick, all right? I was thinking about a couple of, there's several times that kind of come in my life. I, um, I know, I know that you look at, some of you are still talking out there, what are you, like I need to be a teacher, class, all right? I know, I know when you look at me, you think dangerous, you know, God lives on the edge, right? And there, there are a couple of times in my life when I've literally been kind of scared for my life. And uh, one of them, and I won't tell you this full story, but, it, you know, I found myself on the first trip I ever took to Brazil. I found myself at a Brazilian soccer match between two of the biggest rivals in all of Brazil. And the guy a section over from me is shooting Roman candles out of his hand in the midst of the match. I literally got hit with stuff from the upper deck that I do not know what it was and do not want to know what it was. They, when I looked across the way, there were um, there was a whole section. Nobody was there. I was like, well, they didn't sell the place out. That's strange. It's a big game. And then I saw that on every step in that section was a policeman with a dog. And they said that's the barrier between the two sides. They do not let fans from either side interact with each other or it wouldn't be good. And I was a little concerned for my life at that moment. I was like, now, who am I rooting for? What section am I? You know, because the Americans, we like, oh, I'll just root for the other team. They're like, no, 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 no. You, where you sit is where you're in. So that was one time. But the time that I remember when I think about it the most was when I was a kid. Now, I, most of you that have been a part of the church know that I grew up in a place called Dyersburg, West Tennessee. Uh, big D, don't mean Dallas out there. Um, and... Uh, but what you don't know, probably, is that's not where I was originally born. I didn't grow up in Dyersburg. I didn't grow up in the big city. I grew up in a suburb of Dyersburg called Rowellen. And Rowellen had nothing going on. All right? And so when I was growing up, we lived in a neighborhood, and there were about 15 kids in the neighborhood. And what we did every day of the summer, and you think I'm exaggerating about that, every day of the summer, we were on our street, nobody took vacations. Like, we didn't go anywhere. Like, my vacation was a weekend series at the Cardinals. That was it. Like, we'd drive to the Cardinals games, and that was it. That's all we did. Nobody on our street went on vacation. And so every single day of the summer, we played baseball. It's what we did. We'd go, we had a friend, the Petties, that were about 
six houses down, seven houses down from us. You go in our backyard and you'd walk six or seven down. It was one of those neighborhoods that the backyards backed right up against each other. So you'd walk in between the yards. Everybody knew everybody. You said hello, you waved and all that. And you go play baseball for literally four or five hours at a time. Okay, you'd break for lunch and usually uh, Mississippi Petty would have just sandwich stuff and we'd eat that. Parents would contribute to that. That's what we did every day. And on the way to there and from there, there was one guy in particular that you didn't walk through his yard. He was that guy. All right. The get off my lawn guy. You had him. And the reason he didn't walk through his yard was he was so serious about it is he had three Rottweilers. That he had trained, according to our young minds, to destroy anything that got in the yard. All right, now, he had them on leashes. He had them on chains. It wasn't a leash. He had, like, those chains. But you, you just didn't mess with that house. And I remember one day we were playing, and we've been playing, and I always was catcher. Uh, that's what they said, Lyle, we want you to be catcher. I was the youngest kid out there, and we want you to be catcher. And the reason we want you to be catcher, you get to be a part of every play. You know why they want to be catcher? Because it's 112 degrees out there, and I'm wearing all the catcher's gear. These are serious backyard baseball games, like full gear. We didn't use soft balls. We used real baseballs, and we played. And so we got through playing. I was soaking wet, just sweat and tired. And we're walking by, and I'm walking with my brother. My brother's five and a half years older than me. And he always was the pitcher, and he was the cleanup hitter. And, you know, he was, he was my hero. I was looking up to him. We're walking home. And we notice that the Rottweilers are not on their chain. And they're looking at us. And then we notice three or four other neighborhood dogs have gotten behind them. And they're looking at us. And Brian, just as we're walking, he says, just walk slowly, Lyle. And he had a tone in his voice that I didn't like, right? You know, like, this is not good. And so, like, okay, okay. And so we're just kind of we're just kind of walking. We're just kind of walking, keeping around the dogs. The dogs are there. They're all looking. The, there's one Rottweiler at the head of the pack, and the rest of them are kind of fanned out. I mean, it looks like they're in formation, you know. And so they're there, and and I don't know. There were probably four or five hundred dogs at this point. And, you know, that's what it looked like. And so they're at the point, and as we're walking, all of a sudden, that dog at the front lets out a blood-curdling howl. Or yelp. In my mind, it sounds like something straight out of a horror movie, but I'm sure it was just, I mean, it's just that, right? But as it comes, those dogs take off all at once towards us. And all I remember is my brother, who had been calmly, Lyle, just keep walking, keep walking, run! Like it's just, and he takes off, and I take off. And about five steps in, my body, just uh, weary from wearing catcher's equipment for five hours, I trip and I fall. And I remember hearing those steps get closer. And I remember feeling the breath on my legs. You talk about scared. I was six or seven years old. I was there with those dogs that you didn't mess with. And in that moment, I was scared. Now, my guess is nobody here has had any run-ins with dogs lately. Maybe you have. But all of us face things in our lives that feels like it is tracking us down. It's nipping at our heels. It's breathing 
down our necks. As we've talked over the last few weeks about these things that keep us up at night, that keep us worried at night, that keep us anxious at night, the biggest one of those is some sort of nebulous fear, some sort of fear in our lives. In fact, the Bible knows this because the most used command in the entire Bible is do not fear, have courage, don't be afraid, fear not. And what the enemy, what our enemy, the enemy of God wants to do is to demoralize us through fear, through anxiety, through worry, through stress. And it diminishes our ability to give praise and honor to God. I read this week that the most prescribed medication in our country treats fear, anxiety, worry. And that our country is setting records all the time about how much is prescribed just to help people get to sleep at night because of fear. Maybe it's not some physical thing that's in your life. Perhaps some of you it is physical. Maybe you're in a relationship that, that's, that there's physical danger involved. But for many of us, it's worry about if there's going to be enough money at the end of the month for the checks to clear. It's whether or not the relationship we're in is going to end in a way that is not what we would want. It's about whether our children are going to grow up and be the people that they want to be. Or they're going to go down the wrong path. That they're going to end up in a place we don't want them to be. It's about a medical diagnosis that we've gotten or a family member's gotten. It's about the future in general. And you're just scared. Today what I want to do is I want to look at a passage of Scripture that talks about that. And I want to talk through it just for a moment about how we can face those fears in our lives. And I want to make sure we understand what we're talking about here. Because fear and worry and anxiety and stress and despair and depression all kind of come from the same central kind of idea. And here's what we're talking about when we talk about fear. Fear, I've got a definition I think we're going to put up there. Fear is when we believe that apart from or in spite of my best efforts, Something undesirable is going to happen, and I can't stop it. That in spite of, or apart from me doing everything I possibly can do, something bad's going to happen. Fear is that idea of living through life almost like we're in a horror movie and the music has started. You know what I'm talking about? Like you're in a horror movie, and once the music starts, you're like, uh, that's not going to be good, Right? I mean, Susan and I are not big horror movie fans. We don't watch horror movies. Um, when we first got married, in fact, we were watching some action movies, and Susan said, you're going to have to turn the sound off because it's just better without the sound, right? Well, it's not better as a movie without the sound, but it's definitely not as scary without the sound, all right? And so, like, we live our lives. Some of you live our lives like you're in a horror movie, and the music has already started. You're just waiting for that bad thing to happen. There's a root behind a lot of that. For some of us, it's just conditioning. We grew up in a home where our moms or our dads were world champion warriors. They were always concerned. They were always like, make sure you're safe. Make sure you do that. Make sure you take care of yourself. Make sure this is good. Perhaps for you, it's fear comes from a place because you've been concealing some stuff. And you're worried that, it, that something bad's going to happen because people are going to find out about you. Find out what you've been doing over there on the side or find out who you really are, or find out what you've been doing, and you're afraid if they find it out, it'll ruin your family, it'll ruin your career, it'll ruin your life. Some of us just are scared because we like to control things. And life has this crazy way of not letting us control everything. 
And when we are out of control in any aspect of our lives that we don't have control over, we worry about it and we, we fret about it and we get anxious over it. And the problem with fear, for those of us that are believers in Jesus Christ, is this. Fear undermines our understanding and our confidence in the greatness and the goodness of God. So I'm going to look at a story today that just kind of helps us. If you've got your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 14. If you don't have a Bible with you, but if you've got a smartphone, you can actually go to our website, fbcgillisville.com, and just put backslash fear right there, and all the scripture for today will be there. Uh, even the notes from the sermon today are there, uh, the main points, and so um, you can find those there. And the background of this whole story, of this whole series, has been David and Goliath. We're not going to be talking about David and Goliath today, but in the story of David and Goliath, one of the things that we see is that fear plays a huge role in what's happening. And so in that story, David and Goliath are there, and they're always like... Um, you know, that Goliath is coming out every day and pronouncing that it's time to fight. And the Israelites are listening and they're hearing it. And Goliath comes out and tells us twice in that story that Goliath was a champion giant. Now, I don't understand if they had like giant competitions. But it tells us that he is a giant who is a champion. And I don't, here's what I know about being a champion. In order to be a champion, what do you have to do? You have to win, Right. This isn't his first time. This isn't the first time he stepped out. This is an ongoing thing. In order for him to be called champion, he had to have won. He stepped out every day and said, I'm Goliath. I'm the champion. I'm here, to, I'm here to fight. If you'll send somebody, I'll fight him. If I win, you serve us. You win, I serve you. And there's this little verse in there that kind of shows us how fear had crippled these guys. In fact, you don't have to turn there. It'll be right here. There's just one verse we're going to look at from the story. But in 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 11, it says this. When Saul and his troops heard the Philistines challenge, heard Goliath yell out, they were terrified and lost all hope. The word there in the original language means literally like they were shaking in their boots. Like when he came out and spoke, they literally quivered. They literally shook with fear. And they lost all hope. You see, fear had prevented them from following God's plan from recognizing God's purpose. They were discouraged as the people of God. They disbelieved the promises of God. And they were disobeying God's direct commandments just because they were simply scared. And that's the reason fear is such a big deal. Because if we allow it to ruin our lives, if we allow it to get a foothold in our lives, if we allow it to be a part of our lives, it will move us away from what God intends. So in Matthew chapter 14, there's a story that has fear in the midst of it and shows how God can help us overcome it. And it may not be a place that you immediately think about fear because it's so well known as a bigger picture and a bigger story. But I want to focus specifically on two or three things. It starts in verse 21 and it says, and those who ate were about 5,000 men beside women and children. You say, wait a minute, pastor, you started at the end there. Well, we're not talking about feeding the 5,000, but I do want to use it to set the scene because what is important to remember is right before the story we're going to talk about, Jesus had fed 5,000 people. You remember they're all sitting out on a hillside, they're there, and he's been teaching all day, and the apostles and disciples come up to me and go, hey, Jesus, we got a little bit of an issue. It's, it's supper time, and uh, we ain't got anything to eat. Chef's market can't cater it. Wendy's doesn't have enough food. we got to have some food here and jesus says well what do we got and they said we got like this kid this dude he's got like a couple of fish a couple of loaves of bread and uh that's all we got 
Jesus said, well, let's come sit down, we'll eat. They're like, Jesus, I don't think you understand. That's, that's all we have. There are 5,000 men plus women and children. That's all we've got. It's like some meetings I've had with finance committee in the past, right? Like, we really need to do this. That's, that's all we got right here, right? Jesus, I don't think you understand. Jesus said, tell them to sit. They ate. Most of you know the story. They ate 12 baskets full left over. 12. Plenty, plenty. And at that moment, all the people, it tells us in the other Gospels, wanted to make Jesus king. They were ready to make him king. They were ready to say, this is our guy. This is the one. He is it. Listen, if we, he can do that, he can do anything. And here's the thing. If we make him king, like you realize they didn't have presidential primaries back then, right? Like they didn't have elections all the time. And, you know, in light of recent events, that might not have been a bad idea, right? So, but they thought, hey, listen, we, we, we don't have a king currently. We are being overseen by a group of Romans that, that are just oppressing us. Then we need a leader. And if this guy can make food out of that for 5,000, there is no limit to his power. We make him king. He rules us. We're good with that because he's going to feed us every day for free. Jesus, realizing that, says, no, 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 we can't hang around. So the next verse tells us immediately, that's immediately, like they've all eaten, they're all sitting around. You know how the talk's going, he he did all this out of a couple of fish and some bread. Jesus already got his plan going, his mind is already going. He says, guys, y'all get in the boat and go, go, go. For some reason, because of the urgency of that word in the original language, I get this idea that he's like pushing them into the boat. Right. It is Mother's Day. So it reminds me of of moms like getting their kids out the door, like, go, go. We got to go now. Right. He made the disciples get in the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. He's like, guys, you go ahead. You get out of here. I'll tell him goodbye. I'll get him away from here. But y'all go. I don't want you to get caught up in this. There are lots of reasons he did that. One is because he didn't want them to get intoxicated with the power that the people were going to give them as his followers. Like, get out of here. And when he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. Now, that's important because we're going to find out in the next couple of verses that there was already winds and storms brewing on the sea. And Jesus sent them into the storm and he went up on a mountain to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. He's by himself. He's praying on the mountain. Got all the people away. He just needed some time with the Father. He gets that time. He's praying. He's praying. And the whole time he's up there praying by himself, the disciples are out in a boat being buffeted, beaten by the waves with the wind against them. Now, if you look at other places in Scripture, it gives this idea that this wasn't just like a simple wind, that this was a storm that had been brewing that was blowing against them. This is like when Matthew says they were being beaten by the waves or the wind was against them. It's like when you ask your dad or your granddad, is it storming bad out there? And he said, well, the wind's kicking up a little bit and you hear hail hitting the roof right it's a little it's it's a little storm and so they're out there with all their might they're rowing they're doing all that they're trying to get it i imagine peter's at the front yelling instructions at them and they're all mad at peter because nothing's working and they're trying to push against it and he says and in the fourth watch of the night that's late 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 in the night he came to them walking on the sea now we just kind of pass that over if you've been in church for a while because like yeah jesus walked on the water but we forget how amazing this would be. I mean, if you're out this afternoon, you decide your mom wants to go out on Old Hickory Lake, and you get out on Old Hickory Lake, and you're out there kind of puttering around in a boat, and some dude walks past you, right? You go, you know, like if we used to go to Tennessee River some, we get out on the boat. If I'm out there and a jet ski comes by me or a barge comes by me, I'm fine. If a guy walks past me, we're like kids getting the boat. Don't look at him. I don't know what's going on. We are, we're going the other way, right? 
But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified. And wouldn't you be? Amen? And said, it is a ghost. They cried out in fear. And in case we didn't know that they were terrified, it tells us they're yelling in fear. When you put two words like that that close together, it means they were terrified, scared, horrible. This is the worst thing's ever happened to them. We're in the middle of a storm. We don't know how we're getting through the storm. And some dude's out there walking. I think it's a ghost. He's coming to get us. It's over. We're done. And Jesus says to them, says, this is one of those don't be afraid. <laughs> Take heart. It's me. Don't be afraid. And Peter said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And Jesus says, come. Now, we always talk about Peter wanting to see what it's like on the water. Peter wanted to be near Jesus. And I think that's part of it. But I also think Peter here is one of the smartest things he does because he's like, I'm in a boat that has got water coming in. We're about to sink. He's out on the water. I want to be out of the boat. And Jesus says, come. And so Peter begins to walk on the water. He got out of the boat walked on the water, and came to Jesus. Now, here's what I want to point out, and we'll point this out in a minute again in a little more expansive way. But Scripture doesn't say he started towards Jesus. Scripture doesn't say he began stepping towards Jesus. What does Scripture say? It says he came to Jesus. The implication in that word is that he made it to Jesus. Okay? The implication is... You know, when I was growing up and even, you know, recently, I always thought that Peter got out and it was like from me to Jeff and Peter starts to walk and as he's still walking, you know, and even maybe Jesus is doing the parent thing, like, you know, taking a step back as you swim into him, get your hands up. Come on, Peter, come on, come on. Right, right. But it says in here, he made it to Jesus. And when he saw the wind. Now, let me ask you a question. Have you ever seen the wind? What does it look like? Can you see the wind? No, you can't see the wind. You can see the effects of the wind. You can see what the wind does. You can't see the wind. Here's what I want to tell you, all right? The wind was there while he was in the boat, right? The wind was there when he stepped out of the boat. Most people think he would have had to climb out of the boat. The wind has been there, but he sees things that aren't really what he ought to be seeing. In fact, when we are scared, when we're afraid, when we have anxiety, we have a tendency to see things that either aren't there or are nearly as bad as we imagine them to be. Peter's like, the four-year-old that wakes up in the middle of the night and comes to mommy and daddy's room and stands at the side of the bed and kind of taps on them till they wake up and stare them in the face and say, there's a monster in my room. There's no monster in your room. I saw the monster. You did not see the monster. Now, that's hypothetical. That's not like what actually happened two days ago. But you have, like, like I saw, I saw it. No, you didn't see it. Peter just notices that he's out there. He's afraid. And beginning to sink, he cries out, Lord, saves me. And Jesus immediately reached out his hand, took hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Next verse. And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. Now we're going to do this very quickly, but I'll show you three things real fast in this passage of Scripture that should help us anytime anxiety Anytime fear, anytime worry enters our life. And I'm going to give you three points. I want you to write them down somewhere because these are things that you can actually say in the midst of those moments. These are things that you can declare. Not that the words themselves necessarily have power, but the one about who we are talking does. And you can trust in it. So find somewhere to write this down. Here's the first thing that we see in this passage. God is able. 
the first thing that you have to come to terms with when fear and anxiety and worry is wrecking your life is that God is able to do something about it. He has the capability and the power to do something, to change your situation, to alter how you feel or what you're doing. It may be a process. It may involve other people. It may involve medication. It may involve a doctor. It may involve an accountability group. It may involve um, financial help or advice. But God is able, through those processes, to change your circumstance. I mean, Lazarus, when he came out of the grave, still had to have the grave claws taken off. But he was able to be changed because of God. I went this weekend to see uh, this small little movie that's out called um, Captain America Civil War, right? And there's a scene in this movie where this is Chris Evans, play, Captain America. And there's a scene where he um, is trying to stop a helicopter, okay? Now, most of the time, if I were going to stop a helicopter, I would go with, you know, knock out the pilot or, like, take the key out, um, he, as Captain America, decides to grab the skid of the helicopter and the railing from which it is flying and to just hold it there, right? When I watched the movie, the first thing I thought was, how in the world did they get his head on my body and not tell me about it, right? I mean, that's what I thought. Uh, Eli did not think that was a funny joke when I told him that the other night. It's like, Dad, I said, that looks like my... He goes, that does not look like you, Dad. Thanks, Eli. I appreciate it. Thanks for the encouragement. All right. But the thing, the point of this is, right, the point is, I mean, as you're watching this and this thing giving away big parts of the movie, you're like, man, what can he not do? He is literally holding a helicopter from taking off. Like, what can he not do? Right. Well, the point of this whole story for us, why, why, you think, why in the world did they put this story about Jesus walking on water? Because this seems almost like, and it's not, and we'll talk about it why it's not in a minute, it almost seems like a, like a magic trick or a parlor. Like, man, look how cool Jesus is. He can walk on water. But it's not there just for us to go, oh, that's a cool thing. It's there to say, if he can walk on water, he can do absolutely anything. If he can defy the physics of water walking, what can he not do? And even, there's a part of the story you haven't even thought about. My guess is you haven't even thought about. That shows us how powerful he is and that Jesus may have had biceps like that. Listen, Peter, Peter is falling in the water. And what does it say Jesus does? He just lifts him up. What's Jesus standing on? Water. You don't get any traction. Have you ever stood on water? No, you haven't, all right? But here's my guess. You can't stand on water and get a lot of good grip, right? You ever tried to get in a boat from the water? There are very few things in life that will make a guy look less masculine than trying to flail onto a boat from the water. Like, if you don't have, like, a, you know, a stairs or something, you're like, like, you just can't, you just, it just doesn't work. And Jesus just sit there and go, boop, boop. There you are in the boats. He can do absolutely anything. In Isaiah 46, verse 9, I mean, this is, this is a, in the midst of a thing where God is really just kind of talking about how great He is. And listen, if you or I start popping off that how great we are, it's called trash talk or it's called cocky. When God does it, it's just truth. In Isaiah 46, 9, He says, Remember the four things of old, for I am God, there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. God, God is... In this part of Isaiah, he is literally just saying, if you're not going to defend the glory and the power and the honor of my name, I will. 
And there weren't any amens when I read that, but in heaven, God's amening because it is truth. Declaring the end from the beginning. You don't even know how to control your own life. I decide when it starts and when it ends. From ancient times, things not yet done. He goes on to say this. Saying, my counsel shall stand. I will accomplish my purposes. I'll call a bird to pray from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country. I'll do whatever it takes. He said, if I need to use the birds, I'll do it. If I need to call somebody from a far country just to come to tell you what they're supposed to do, I'll do it. I have spoken. I will bring it to pass. I have purposed it. I will do it. I am able to do what I say I will do, and nothing can stop me. There is no God like him. And the truth is, when we allow fear and worry and anxiety to invade our lives, we are diminishing our thoughts of how great our God is. We're not diminishing how great he is because we don't have the power to do that. We are diminishing in our own minds and in the testimony of our lives how great our God is. When we act as if God cannot handle the situation we are in, we are saying that our problems are bigger than God and there could be nothing further from the truth. There is no God like our God. He is able. That's why Jesus says, why are you worried? Why would you worry? You see the birds? Birds are taken care of. They got food to eat. They're clothed. You don't think God's going to take care of you? And who of you, he says, can add a moment to your life by worrying? You know the answer to that, don't you? None of you. Not a single one. God is able. The second thing we see in this passage is that God is present. He is near. He is with us. God is present. It tells us in the passage that immediately, right? It says that Peter starts to, sees the wind, gets concerned, gets scared, starts to fall. And it says immediately Jesus reaches down and picks him up. If Jesus immediately reached down and picked him up, that word means like right then. If you reached down to pick him up, it meant that Peter was right there at him and was much closer than he ever anticipated. Can I tell you that in your life, when you get scared and alone and things are worried in your life and anxiety has taken over, God is closer than you would ever imagine. And his presence makes all the difference. Look at what Psalm 16, 8 says. I have set the Lord always before me. This is David writing this. He says, I have always reminded myself that the Lord is with me. He is at my right hand. He is right here with me, always with me. David was able to face Goliath because he knew God was with him. He says, I shall not be shaken. I'm not going to be moved because my God is here. And when he's here, everything is good. I mentioned I grew up in the suburbs of Rowellen, and one of the things we used to do in Rowellen that was a big day, and this is when I was young, we would go into the big city of Dyersburg. And Dyersburg didn't have a Walmart. We didn't even have... Uh, a target. They didn't have those kind of things around here back then. Back in the olden days, right? But we had a Kmart. Kmart was the big deal to go to town. The Kmart blue light specials with actual blue lights flashing and people rushing to them, right? It was like Black Friday every 20 minutes at Kmart. And you go to Kmart with mom or dad and it was always a big event and we were excited about it. And there was that moment when you graduated from having to ride in the cart and by the way, those carts back then were not like the comfortable carts they have now. They were like, you have like places on your legs from sitting in them, right? And so you'd be in the cart, and then you'd go to walking, but having to hold Mama's hand. And then there came the point when you no longer had to hold Mama's hand. You could walk around Kmart with her. And you always enjoyed that freedom. And you'd like, you know, watch and like, like, look at this. I'm like three feet away from Mom. I'm good. I got this. I'm taking care of myself. I'm good, right? And you'd be like five feet away. Like, I see you, Mom. I got you. Mom, you got me good. I'm good. 
Like you, you walk over there, I'm good. I, no, I don't need you. I'm good. I'm good. And then something would distract you. And you're like, well, what's that on the ground? Oh, it's a used bubble gum wrapper with some used gum in it. Let me check that out for a minute. You kind of look around and look up. And then you look up and she gone, right? Like, where, where'd Mongo? Well, she got to be around here. Man, she can't gone far. She's got to be right here. And then you look around and you realize she's not, she's not here. And so you do the only thing you know to do as a six-year-old kid. You get on the floor to see if you can see her feet through the racks at the store, right? Because you can't see over them. And so then you realize all of a sudden that your mom is gone. And your six-year-old mind, you don't have any concept of the fact that she's probably 10, 15, 20 feet away from you. You just know in that moment, I don't know where she is. And you do what only a six-year-old knows how to do. You pitch an absolute fit and scream and wail until an associate comes and takes you to the front of the store. And they don't do this anymore. But back in the old days, they didn't care about strangers picking up kids that weren't their own. And so they would get you to the front and they would get you. How many of you remember this, right? And you get up to the front and they would say, oh, yes, we need to see Miss Larson. Uh, you have a child having an absolute fit at the front of the store. He needs to be picked up. And so they would come to the front, and the moment, the moment that mom came into sight, everything was okay. The moment you saw her, everything was okay. When we realize the presence of God right there with us, it makes everything okay. God is able. God is present. And here's the last thing, and then we're done. God is good. I mean, if God wasn't good, none of the other two would matter. If he was able and he was present, but he wasn't good, it wouldn't matter. But God is good. That always brings us back to the cross. If we ever doubt his goodness, we go back to the cross and see his sacrifice. In this story, he reaches down, he picks up Peter. He does say, where was your faith? But he doesn't do that before he picks Peter up. He gets Peter safe and then says, where's your faith, man? Didn't you know I was right here? I was going to take care of you. I'm good. I'm not going to let you fall. No matter what, Jesus is good. He's there for us. I kind of left you hanging with the dog story. I was on the ground. I could feel the dogs approaching. I could literally feel their breath on my leg. And my brother, who was well in front of me, could sense something was wrong and turned around. And the moment he saw those dogs about to get to me, my brother ran directly at them, screaming and yelling at the top of his lungs. I'm going to tell you about my brother. He did not like dogs. That was not in his nature. But in that moment, those dogs were scared of somebody bigger coming their way. And he did look like a crazy person at that particular moment, just to be all honest. And right before, and I'm, I mean, I know you think he's exaggerating. I mean, literally right before they were on me, that lead dog went, ur, ur. they all turned around and ran the other way. Brian picked me up, took me home. Everything was good. Here's the thing. I love my brother. To this day, I love my brother. I, I believe he would do whatever he could to protect me. But I got a God that's a whole lot bigger. A little lot more able more caring and knowing and present. And in those moments of fear, when it feels like the dogs are literally at our leg, we can trust Him. Let's pray together.